0: Our text this morning is uh, Paul's letter to the Christians in Galatia, Galatians 4, verses 1 through 7. So if you have your Bibles, if you turn there, Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. This is God's word for us today, so let's pay close heed to it. Born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Please pray with me. Father, this is your word this morning. You caused it to be written. Every word of it is your word, every jot, every tittle in it. And we pray now that you would come and illuminate it so that we might understand it and apply it to our lives, and you might be glorified even more when we do that. For Jesus' sake, we ask it. Amen. Well, I have the great uh, privilege this morning of Leading us in reflection on the reality of the Christmas story as it's seen in this text. And I want to begin this morning with a question. Where do you think the Christmas story really began? You know, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Have you ever thought about that? Uh, Did it begin with the manger? Did it begin with the promise of a child to marry? Did it begin with the conception in Mary by the Holy Spirit? Did it begin with Isaiah's prophecy that a virgin would conceive and bear a son? Or later with his prophecy that a son would be born, a child would be given, on whose shoulders the government would rest? Or did it begin way back in the Pentateuch, the first books of the Bible, We're told that one greater than Moses would come. Where did the Christmas story really begin? Well, to answer that question, I want to take you back to the very beginning of the Bible and look at a few of those verses which were read by Marty just a few minutes ago. In Genesis chapter 1, we have the record of God creating the universe with just a word from his mouth. And he says at the end of that chapter that he looked on what he had made, and he liked it. It was very good. Then in chapter 2, we have this discussion of the creation of man and woman and how God gave them dominion over all the earth. This was a good time. They were in full fellowship as children of God. They were heirs of all of God's creation. They were bearers of God's glorious image, and they were without sin. This was the best of times. This was paradise. But then we come to chapter 3, and things go south. Chapter 3 records the rebellion of Adam and Eve against their sovereign, beloved Creator, against the one who was their Father. They became alienated from God. They were headed for death, Destined to be eternally separated from him. They had become sons of the serpent, slaves, children of Satan. This was paradise lost. And the question I think comes immediately Would God try to restore fallen man? Would He would He seek to redeem him to Himself? Would he come up with a plan B to again make men and women his sons and daughters? And the answer is emphatically yes. It comes in Genesis 3.15, where God says, he's speaking to Satan, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And right after they did this, you know, after they had sinned, their fellowship with God was broken, and rather than trying than seeking this fellowship with God, they ran away from it. They tried to hide themselves. And as if to seal that rupture permanently, God tossed them out of the garden. And one of the verses that uh, Marty read says, "...he put an angel with a flaming sword at the entrance." to make sure that they never tried to get back in. In the beginning of verse 15, God doesn't offer a very specific plan on how He's going to do this. He says simply that there's going to be a battle between the seed of woman and Satan, and Satan comes in second. He says he's the loser in this battle. You know, this word seed or offspring, it can be either singular or it can be plural. You know, it could mean one descendant of a woman or many descendants of a woman. But then God gets very specific. In the end of that verse, God says to Satan, he shall bruise your head. You know, God's not talking here about seed or descendants in general. Now he's talking about a single descendant of woman. There's a he here who will be born of a woman who will bruise Satan's head. It's going to be a fatal blow, and Satan will only be able to bruise his heel, which is a temporary and minor wound. So a man then is going to be born from a woman to take back the domain of Satan and redeem those who are captive to his power. So the question now becomes, who is this he? Who is this man? Who is this offspring of a woman who will deal this final blow to Satan? Well, you know, reading ahead, reading along in the book of Genesis, we come to the flood. And the flood wipes out the whole world with exception of eight people. And so the line through which this man is coming, it's scoped down, it's narrowed down just to the family of Noah. Noah had three sons, and one of them was chosen to be, to be the line. His son, the son Shem. And we read on, and we find out that Abraham, who was in the line of Shem, is promised that this one man will bless all the nations of the earth. And so the offspring, this man, whoever he is, is going to come through Eve, through Noah, through Shem, through Abraham. The promise then moves through Abraham's second son by Sarah, namely Isaac, and then through his son Jacob, and then through Jacob's son Judah, and then through Judah's royal son David. And the seed flows all the way down until we read in Matthew 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And we see all this. We read that to Abraham was born Isaac, and to Isaac, Jacob, and to Jacob, Judah. And we follow the flow all the way down until we read in verse 16 of Matthew 1, And to Jacob was born Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Jesus Christ was born as that man sent to fulfill that long-ago promise that God made in Genesis 3.15. This man, this he, came to engage in mortal combat with Satan that would result in Satan's destruction and the liberation of many of his slaves to become sons and daughters of God. And that was God's intended purpose for them from the very beginning. Well, let's now move on over to Galatians and look at a few of those verses which Marty read. We are going to get to the text, so hang in there with me, all right? So take a look first at Galatians 3.16. Galatians now, the promise was made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. You know, this is the, very, this is the end of the prophecy in Genesis 3.15. One is coming, God told Abraham, out of your loins... That will be the Christ, the Messiah, and he will bruise the serpent's head, Satan's head. Now, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be without a price because the serpent will bruise Christ's heel, inflicting him with a painful but temporary wound. And I think that speaks, of course, to Jesus' death on the cross. But that death was temporary. Jesus rose from the dead. And he dealt a crushing blow to Satan. And so verses 26 and 29 of Galatians 3 say, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. See, there it is. Paradise lost is now paradise regained for those who are in Jesus Christ. We are sons and daughters of God again. You know, the redemptive, restorative process, which which God set in motion way back there in Genesis 3.15, finds its culmination in Christ, who dies for sinners like you and me, who rises to live a new life, granting that same life to those who believe in Him. And in the process, He deals a crushing, killing blow to Satan. Now, that's a that's a pretty good plan. You know, man was originally created to be a son and heir of God's promises. But then he messed up. He became a slave of sin. He became a slave of Satan. And Paul writes here in our text that God sent forth his son to buy us back out of that slave market to redeem us and make us sons and daughters again. So let's take a look at this text this morning. You know, the first thing that strikes me is this analogy that we see in verses 1 through 3. You know, in both uh, Jewish and Greek cultures, there were, there were definite coming-of-age ceremonies you know, where, where a child stopped being a child and started being an adult with legal rights as an heir. And in the Roman custom, which I think Paul seems to be concerned with here, there wasn't a specific age when the son became a man. It happened when the father thought the boy was ready, when he thought the time was right. There was a time when that child was under guardians and stewards or, and tutors and governors, managers, those who controlled his behavior, who administered his estate, who discipline him, all of that, but a time would come when those overseers would no longer have control over him, and he would be free to act as a son and, w- and when does that happen? Well, Paul doesn't list any particular age here. It happens when the father says it will happen, when the father thinks the time is right. and I, you know I, this is Paul's main point here. That every father sets a date for that release to take place. And our heavenly father does the same thing with his son. You know, in verse 3, Paul takes this human illustration to the spiritual dimension. And he says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And the question is, you know, what are these? elementary principles of the world. What are are we enslaved to? You know, I'm not totally certain of everything that Paul is getting at here. You know, but but surely those verses uh, over in Genesis tell us that we're enslaved to Satan. We're enslaved to our sin, which we inherited from our first parents. We come into this world hot-wired as sinners, You know, R.C. Sproul used to say, "We, we don't become sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We are born into sin. You know, I also think that Paul had in mind, particularly in our relationship to God, that we have to break free from this worldly elementary principle of what I call cause and effect. Now, you can call it something else. You can call it karma. You can call it you get what you deserve in this world or whatever. But this general elementary principle, it rules the world. It rules nature. It rules the the minds of sinful man. Now, isn't it true that we live under the idea that in this world we get pretty much what we deserve That when we're good, we deserve to receive good. And when we're bad, we deserve to receive bad. You know, if you don't believe me, (laughs) listen to the words of this popular song which people teach their children at Christmas time. Better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty and nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. Dear ones, we don't have enough time this morning to go into all the false and dangerous theology in that seemingly harmless little song. But I would have you note the main idea of it. On what basis does Santa give out his favors? What do I have to do to receive good things from this false transcendent being called Santa? Well, it's very simple. I have to be good in other words i can earn santa's favor if i'm good santa will give me gifts and if i'm not nice and good but naughty i won't get any gifts so i'd better be good for goodness sake this is very bad theology and my point is that this kind of thinking i think it's elementary in the lives of most human beings today, that we can earn God's favor. And Paul tells the Galatians, and he tells us, to get beyond this kind of elementary principle of the world into a fuller understanding of God's grace. You see, God's grace contradicts this elementary principle because under grace, God doesn't deal with us on the basis of what we deserve. If he did, we would all be in big, big trouble. Our good can't justify us. Under grace, our good cannot save us. We're not good enough. And our bad need not condemn us. You See, God's blessing and favor is given on, the, on, a, on a principle completely apart from this elementary principle of the world. His blessing and favor is given for reasons that are completely in Him, have nothing to do with us. And when we live on the principle of earning and deserving before God, we live in bondage. We live in bondage under the elements of the world. And with the coming of Christ Jesus, we are freed from that bondage. So, and I, you know, I think this is what Paul is getting at here in these first three verses with this human illustration. And it all happens when the fullness of time had come. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. See, this is is a wonderful Christmas story. I hope that you see that. This is the Christmas story in a nutshell, right here, these two verses. These two verses, verses 4 and 5, are basically the, the cliff notes, the summary of Christmas, of how and why Jesus came to earth. Now, what does Paul mean here when he says that Jesus came in the fullness of time? You know, I thought about doing this or, uh, or not doing it, but this past week I, I've racked my brain trying to figure out a way to, to illustrate this, this concept of the fullness of time. You know, the word actually refers, it refers to things made by God and then purposely filled by Him with other things. That's the meaning of the word. Uh, for example, God made the heavens. Then he filled them with lights and birds. He made the earth. Then he filled it with vegetation and with creatures. He made the seas. And then he filled them with sea creatures. In much the same way, he made you and me. And he wants to fill us with himself. He wants to fill us with his promises. He wants to fill us with Jesus. But here's the rub. Because we are enslaved to other things, we often resist. We don't want to be filled with God's promises. We don't want to be filled with Jesus. We spit him out when he tries to fill us. And I should probably apologize right now, but when I was thinking about how God fills things and how we often resist this filling, I could not help. This past week I could not help but think of a father trying to feed his infant son, trying to fill him up. You know, many of your fathers can remember the absolute fiasco of mealtime with a kid who isn't at all sure he wants what you're offering. He looks at you accusingly as if to ask, you know, who are you? Where's my regular mom? You talk to him calmly, because you've heard somewhere that they can smell fear. <laughs> you know, the the little high chair tray is shoved up against these little chests to prop him up, to keep him from falling out. The bib is in place, the hose is also handy. Now the, the strained beets or pears or whatever you feed these kids, They try to make it through tense grimaces and and flailing arms of both dad and son. And you notice, as your patience reaches its limit, that your jaw is starting to ache. And you realize that you're the only one who's been holding a mouth open the whole time. So he eats some. He he spits some out. You can't tell if more has gone in and gone out but now you've put a great deal of energy into this relationship. And interestingly enough, you're now more completely, I think, dad and son. It's certainly not the best analogy. But the act of filling here can be an act of bonding. It could be an act of union. You see, this is what our Father wants to do with us. And we should never spit him out. You know, maybe a better way, well, it is a better way, to get a sense of this coming of Jesus in the fullness of time is to is to look just briefly at what was actually going on in the world when Jesus was born, for example, you know, at the time of christ's birth, the civilized world was united politically in a way that it, that it hadn't been for many centuries before Caesar augustus he 's mentioned in uh, Luke's account of the Christmas story. He's credited by historians as having established what came to be known as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. You know, until the triumph of Augusta, which ending the it ended the Roman civil wars that basically unfolded after Julius Caesar was murdered, the Mediterranean world was a mess. It was an absolute chaos. There were pirates on the sea. There were warring factions on the ground. Robbers were on the main roads. Civil war was within the Roman Empire. In addition, there were these continuing threats from the barbarians who were pressing in upon the Roman Empire on all sides. But Caesar Augustus brought peace and tranquility to the world, and that helped in the spreading of the gospel the world was also linked together as it hadn't been previously by a very elaborate Roman highway system. You've heard the expression, all roads lead to Rome. Well, that was literally true in Augustus' day. You know, wherever the Roman legions went, roads were built. And this magnificent system of roads literally linked all areas of the Roman Empire. So when the Apostle Paul and all these other early missionaries began to take the gospel to the world, they found that the Roman roads were a great means of communication. And then there was the language that unified the Roman Empire. The Romans, who spoke Latin, were in control, but the language was that united the empire it was not Latin, it was Greek. In preparation for this marvelous unity, it began actually with the conquest of Alexander the Great. Now, Alexander had come over from Macedonia, where his father Philip had been a powerful king before him. He'd moved east, conquering Greece, then crossed over into what is today called Turkey. He went into Palestine. And then finally, he moved further east to the very borders of India, And all that area was settled by the descendants of Alexander the Great. So the Greek language that went with him soon became, it was the political and the business language of the entire area. So you see, when Paul and the other uh, missionaries went around the Roman Empire, they didn't have to learn hundreds of different dialects. All they had to do was to learn Greek. There was another way that the world was prepared for the coming of of Jesus. At that time, basically, there was a spiritual vacuum existing in the world. People were desperately looking for anything which would give meaning to their lives. And the religions of the ancient world had pretty much run their course by this time. And they had proved totally ineffective to helping anybody. And all of this was God's preparation in history for the coming of Christ and the preaching of the gospel. It was indeed the fullness of time. God the Father looked at it. He had prepared it. It was the right time. And so he released his son. God sent forth his son. That's a short little phrase. But what you have there. And that little phrase is a clear statement of the deity of Jesus Christ, of Christ being eternal. God didn't make Jesus. That's not what Paul says here. Paul says that God sent Jesus. Now, Jesus isn't some created being. He was already there in the presence of God the Father as the second person in the Trinity. And at the proper time, when it was exactly right, when all the stars and the planets aligned, God sent forth his son. And then we read that this son was born of a woman. You know, this tells us of Jesus' humanity. He had a human birth. This he of Genesis 3.15 was not only God, he was also man, all in the same person. You know, there's no mention here of a father here on earth. Joseph wasn't his earthly father. You know, Mary had that child conceived by the Holy Spirit when she was a virgin, and she remained a virgin, the scriptures say, until the child was born. And and by the way, just as a little aside, you know, that immaculate conception, she and Joseph, after that, she and Joseph had a quiver full of kids. They're mentioned throughout the New Testament, which I think dispels this Catholic notion notion that Mary was a perpetual virgin. virgin. She wasn't. And Jesus was born under the law. Like any other man, Jesus was responsible to the law of God. He had a responsibility to obey it. But like no other man, he obeyed it perfectly. He knew no sin. He kept the law perfectly, something we can't do. And why did he do that? Why did Jesus do all this? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Two beautiful words there, redemption and adoption. You now, Redemption is derived from two Latin words, re meaning again, and a mare, meaning to buy. So redemption literally means buying again or buying back, as in redeeming something that's been pawned, something that's been mortgaged. We use that word all the time in the material world. The Bible uses it to signify that we're God's children, but have fallen into bondage as a result of our sin. And now we have to be purchased out of this bondage, this slavery by Christ. You know, you're familiar. A beautiful Old Testament illustration of this redemption is Hosea, who went into the marketplace and he bought back his wife, Gomer, out of prostitution, out of slavery. And in that drama, in that play, Hosea played the part of faithful God Gomer played the part of rebellious, sinful Israel. Go back and read the Old Testament book of Hosea. It's a beautiful picture of God's redemption of his people. You've heard of John Newton. John Newton, the man who wrote the most popular and famous hymn in America, Amazing Grace, he knew exactly how to remember his redemption. You know the story of Newton. He was an only child, Whose mother died when he was only seven years old. He became a sailor, and he went out to sea at the old age of 11 years old. As he grew up, he became the captain of a slave ship, and he had an active hand in that horrible inhumanity of the slave trade. But when he was 23, on March the 10th, 1748, when his ship was in danger of sinking off the coast of Newfoundland, he cried out to God for mercy and he found it. And John Newton never forgot how amazing it was that God had received him, as bad as he was. Satan or Santa would never have received him. To keep it fresh in his memory, he fastened across the mantle of the fireplace of his study. The words of Deuteronomy 15, 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. It's a great reminder. Now, if we keep fresh in our minds what we once were, and what we are now in Jesus Christ will be in good shape and that brings us to this word adoption another beautiful word you know if you think about it it would be enough that we're redeemed that we're purchased out of the slave market of sin but but God's work for us doesn't end there we are then elevated to the place of sons and daughters of God by adoption into his family. You know, there's a sense in which this is a totally unnecessary blessing that God has given us in the course of salvation. But it's a demonstration of his incredible and deep love for us. You know, I think we can picture someone helping or saving somebody else, but not going so far as to make them part of the family. But this is what God has done for us. We now have a new status, the status of a son or a daughter. We're no longer in bondage to the law. We're no longer in bondage to the flesh. No, we're no longer gritting our teeth trying to perform. Now, by faith, we are part of God's family. God has adopted us. Jesus is our older brother. We eat at God's table, not as a guest, but as sons and daughters. And we enjoy that intimate fellowship with God that was lost back in the fall. You know, we're going to get a little bit of taste of this fellowship this morning when we come to the Lord's table. And I think the confirmation of all this is when God gives us His Spirit, and He causes us to cry, Abba, Father, Daddy. Papa. And he pulls us back into this intimate fellowship with himself. An intimacy which we lost way back in Genesis. This is paradise regained. Well, let me add just one final point, uh, and I'm done. You know, it was when the fullness of time had come that the Lord Jesus Christ came the first time. And in just the same way, It's going to be in the fullness of time that he will come back a second time. I don't have any idea when that's going to be. Neither do you. I don't know when the harvest of God's people will be gathered in, but it will happen. That's what the Bible said. Peter tells us that very clearly in his second letter. And I'm obligated, as a preacher of the gospel, to press the question upon you. Will you be ready when he returns? I don't know when that's going to be. It may be a long time from now. Maybe soon. It could be right now. My question to you this Lord's Day is, are you ready? The only way to be ready is to stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, is to believe in the Son whom God sent in the fullness of time, born of a woman, born under the law. You see, it's only this son, it's only this son who can redeem you from the curse of the law, who can save you from your sins, and who can make you an heir of God. It's only this son who can make you an adopted son or daughter of God himself. You know, God is never rushed. He, He never panics. Jesus will not come too soon. He will not come too late. There are no loose threads in the province of God. No events left to chance. The great clock of the universe keeps good time. And this whole machinery of providence moves with unerring punctuality. And dear ones, the proof of this is that Christ didn't come too soon or too late the first time he came in the fullness of time determined by the father and i pray that you will come to that he will come to you now and that you for your part might come to him in faith and be redeemed and become his child and you can call him abba father and i would pray that god would make it so in every heart this morning let's pray father we We thank you again for the reminder of the true significance of Christmas. We thank you for Christ, who always keeps His promises and who takes us out of slavery into His own family, not by something we've done, but by what He has done, who blesses us forever and ever, not according to our works, but according to His mercy. We thank you, Father, for the Son, who came in the fullness of time to give us back paradise, to make us sons and daughters and heirs of all that you possess. And we pray this this morning in his blessed and holy name. Amen.